We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. They might be out. Okay, I'm out. Well, it looks funny out there. See my glove out there, Jim. Give me more. Get that yet. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? We have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, Tranquility uh, Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 78 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy 9A with Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan, part two. We left off last week with the destruction of the Gemini 9A Atlas Agena and the subsequent scrubbing of the Gemini 9A launch. As contractors worried about technical problems with the Atlas, once again, NASA faced the necessity for a quick recovery plan when a target vehicle failed to reach orbit. You may recall the first time was with Gemini 6. But this time, NASA had something in the hangar, an alternative vehicle, the Augmented Target Docking Adapter, also known as the ATDA. The ATDA was a short cylinder consisting of a target docking adapter cone mounted on front, and it contained a communication system, a guidance and control system, and a reaction control system. It also had running lights. But, unlike the Agena, the ATDA was not stabilized. And, quite conveniently, the ATDA also used an Atlas as its booster. For more details on the ATDA, listen to Episode 71. After the Gemini 6 Agena exploded back in October of 1965, NASA had ordered General Dynamics to prepare to furnish a backup atlas within 14 days of another such catastrophe. And, in April 1966, just a month before the attempted launch of Gemini 9A, William Snyder, Deputy Director of Missions Operation, had reminded Merrick Preston, one of NASA's leaders at the Cape, that he would have to be ready to launch the alternative target in a hurry if the Agena again failed to keep its orbital appointment. Now it had. On May 18th, Charles Matthews wired Colonel John Hudson, Deputy Commander for Launch Vehicles, Air Force Space Systems Division, to prepare an atlas for launch on May 31st for Gemini 9A. With the backup plan now in effect, the next question was what to do if the ATDA also failed. At a staff meeting on May 18th, Charles Matthews announced that the Gemini 9A would be launched anyway to rendezvous with the Gemini 8 Agena. But McDonald Company was confident of the ATDA. In a management meeting with NASA and McDonald, held in St. Louis the next day, Charles Matthews asked if anyone had reservations about flying the ATDA, and the answer was no. It turned out to be a good thing that no one had a problem with using the ATDA, 
because the idea of a rendezvous with the old Gemini 8 Agena as a backup plan soon had to be abandoned. The Gemini 8 Agena's orbit had not decayed enough, and it was still orbiting Earth 402 kilometers up. The concern was reaching the Gemini 8 Agena might use too much of Gemini 9A's fuel and leave the crew stranded with no way to get to the lower orbit needed for retrofire. Deputy Administrator Robert Siemens and Mueller agreed with Matthews that rendezvous with Agena 8 was too risky, but Gemini 9A would still fly even if the substitute target did not make it. Extravehicular activity with the Astronaut Maneuvering Unit, or AMU, was an important enough objective on its own. Long before these decisions were made, the Atlas contractors were frantically busy. Richard Keene, General Dynamics Program Manager, had bundled up the Atlas telemetry tapes and headed for San Diego, where study of the data, plus some tests, located the trouble in the electrical wiring. Within a week, Keene and his group pinpointed the cause of the Atlas failure. It was a pinched wire in the autopilot that produced a short circuit. This meant some extra work on the electrical connectors, and General Dynamics asked NASA for an extra day to complete the task and prepare the new Atlas for launch. NASA agreed and set June 1st as the new launch date. Although General Dynamics had accepted the blame for the mission failure, Lockheed was worried about telemetry signals that indicated a problem with an Agena inverter. A nagging question persisted. Could the target vehicle have gone into orbit if the Atlas had worked? This inverter provided power to both the gyroscope and the sequence timer. To Lockheed's relief, a series of cameras located at Melbourne Beach, Florida, got pictures of the Atlas failure. They showed that the Agena passed through ionized gases from the Atlas booster exhaust, which caused an electrical short and the resulting failure of the inverter. So Lockheed and Agena were off the hook. With all the known problems corrected, we'll move on to the launch of the ATDA. On June 1, 1966, men and machines were again gathered at the Cape Kennedy launch site this time to try to send the alternative target vehicle and Gemini 6A into coordinated orbital flight. At the appointed time, 10 a.m., the Atlas rose from pad 14. After a six-minute boosted phase, it inserted the ATDA into a nearly perfect 298-kilometer orbit. But there was a problem. Telemetry signals from the ATDA indicated that the launch shroud covering the docking port had only partially opened and had failed to jettison. At the same time, over on pad 19, Stafford and Cernan were going through their countdown to launch. When the count reached the three-minute mark, a hold was called so the spacecraft could be launched precisely on time for the best catch-up trajectory with its target. Almost immediately after the count resumed, problems developed in the Cape ground launch control equipment when it tried to send the spacecraft refined information on the exact launch azimuth. The launch window, which was only 40 seconds long, closed, and Mission Director Snyder delayed the flight for 48 hours. For the second time, 
Stafford and Cernan had to take the elevator down. Tom Stafford said, Frank Borman and Jim Lovell may have more flight time, but nobody had more launch pad time in Jiminy than he did. In fact, by the time Jiminy 9A eventually lifted off, Tom Stafford had been in the two spacecrafts, Jiminy 6 and Jiminy 9, ready for launch a total of six times. Two days later, on June 3rd, Jiminy 9A with Stafford and Cernan were ready to launch again. Here's an audio clip of the launch coverage. T-minus 50 seconds and counting. We'll get ignition at zero in the countdown. Some three seconds thereafter, liftoff will come. During that period, there will be a period of about 1.8 seconds where we possibly will capable of shutting down if necessary. T-minus 35 seconds and counting. T-minus 30. T-minus 25 seconds and counting. We're on an automatic sequence. Everything appears to be going well during this final phase. T-minus 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have ignition. We have a liftoff. It looks like 39 minutes, 32 seconds after the hour. My dynamics reports the thrust looks good. The roll program has started. The roll program is completed. The pitch program has started. We have a liftoff. Time confirmed at 3933 after the hour. Reached 50 seconds into the flight. Spacecraft and its booster are moving at 740 miles per hour. We are now reaching for four nautical miles in altitude. T plus one minute and 20 seconds. Spacecraft is now approximately 8 nautical miles in altitude. The track looks good. We are about 5 nautical miles downrange. T plus 1 minute and 45 seconds, and we are 12 nautical miles downrange and approximately 16 nautical miles in altitude. The track still looks very good. T plus 2 minutes, 20 seconds. The flight crew have been notified that they are go for staging. The spacecraft is now about 52 nautical miles, 50 nautical miles downrange and about 36 nautical miles in altitude. And we have Pico, booster engine cut off. The thrust looks good. The track looks good. T plus 2 minutes, 50 seconds. 
Flight dynamics and guidance and surgeon all report they look good. The spacecraft now is approximately 120 nautical miles downrange and approximately 60 nautical miles in altitude. Flight dynamics says we're right down the middle. Flight director Gene Kranz has just completed a final status check. We are green and go, and that information has been passed on to Tom Stafford in Gemini 9. The flight began precisely at 8.39 and 33 seconds a.m. Stafford watched the instruments more closely than his predecessors since he had this new insertion error correction to handle in starting the rendezvous sequence. You may recall from the previous episode the objective was to rendezvous with the target vehicle in the third orbit to closely simulate the Apollo requirements. Six minutes after launch, Capcom Neil Armstrong gave the go for insertion error correction. Seconds later, Stafford fired his spacecraft thrusters in the chase toward the target vehicle 1,060 kilometers ahead. By the time Stafford and Cernan arrived over the Canary Islands, only 17 minutes after launch, the computer had made its calculation. Armstrong gave the crew the data for the phase adjustment near the first apogee. At 49 minutes into the flight, the thrusters added 22.7 meters per second to spacecraft speed to raise its perigee from 160 to 232 kilometers. Cernan exclaimed, I felt that one, Tom. During the hour before the triple play to correct phase, height, and out-of-plane errors, the crew checked the system, went through stowage list and took off gloves and helmets, and got the cameras ready for the rendezvous. To circularize the flight path, Stafford pitched the nose of the spacecraft down 40 degrees and turned it 3 degrees to the left of its flight path. 51 seconds later, he fired the aft thrusters to add 16.2 meters per second to the vehicle's speed. The orbit now measured 274 by 276 kilometers, 22 kilometers below and 201 kilometers behind the target vehicle, and closing at a rate of 38 meters per second. Over Tenerife, 12 minutes before Stafford had fired the thrusters, the crew got some flickers of a radar contact with their target. A range reading of 240 kilometers between the two vehicles showed on the scale. George Towner and the other Westinghouse radar builders were relieved. They had worried about the acquisition of a target, the ATDA, that was not stabilized. The Agena was a stabilized vehicle. The ATDA was not, and its radar reflectivity changed with its continuing change in attitude. Within 220 kilometers, however, electronic lock-on was relatively good. At T plus 3 hours 20 minutes, the crew caught sight of their target, 93 kilometers away. For some time, it went in and out of view on an optical sight. At 56 kilometers, it became quite clear and remained visible from then on. As he drew near, Stafford reported seeing flashing acquisition lights, thinking for a moment that the shroud might have jettisoned after all. He said, quote, All right, we're in business. End quote. Surely, 
they could not have seen the running light so clearly if the shrouds were still attached. While making minor corrections, the moon soon became an asset, as its rays reflected off the ATDA. Stafford began slowing his spacecraft at T-plus four hours and six minutes. During the closure period, he peered out the window trying to see if the shroud was there or not. Then he exclaimed, Look at that moose! As the distance dwindled, he knew that he had been indulging in wishful thinking. The shroud was still on the ATDA. Seconds later, Cernan remarked, quote, You could almost knock it off. End quote. When the final braking was completed, the two vehicles were only 30 meters apart and in a position for station keeping but it did not seem likely that the spacecraft nose could slip into the mouth of the docking adapter and dock. The crew described the shroud in detail and wondered out loud what could be done to salvage the situation. One of Stafford's remarks, graphic and memorable, became the trademark of the entire mission. His animal analogy switched to reptilian when he said, quote, it looks like an angry alligator out there rotating around, end quote. He wanted to nudge the shroud with his spacecraft docking bar to open the alligator's jaws, but Flight Director Krantz told him to control the urge. Perhaps the most significant aspect of this incident was the close examination of an unstable body while discussing it over the air-to-ground circuit. Stafford stayed 9 to 12 meters from the target, but moved to a ticklishly close position only centimeters away in the daylight. As the ATDA rotated slowly, he rolled his spacecraft upside down to parallel the movements of the weird-looking machine. His performance met, in effect, one of the Defense Department's objectives for the AMU, finding and inspecting unidentified satellites. Stafford said he could plainly see that the explosive bolts had fired, but that two neatly taped lanyards held the clamshell partially in place. Mission Control assured him that these lanyard wires had high tensile strength, so it might not be wise to nudge its jaws. Here's a clip of Stafford describing the maneuver during a press conference shortly after the mission. Again, the target docking adapter was in this position, and we came up directly from below. And at approximately a half a mile, Gene called out, I've got the cone lights. Now, the cone lights are the lights in here where you can make the docking. And again, even a half a mile, we knew that the shroud couldn't be on here. However, we had a full moon, and suddenly it looked rather odd to us. And we came up to a position of approximately 1,000 feet. We could see this whole shroud out in reflected moonlight. And we reported this over Hawaii and moved into close formation. And we flew all the way around the docking adapter here. Particularly, we noticed the straps and these small items here that contain some explosive bolts. And from this close investigation, we'll have some movies to show you in a few minutes. We radioed uh, to Houston through Hawaii exactly what our analysis was, and it came out correct that either the lanyards were not installed or else they were installed but not connected, and the latter was the proper case. From this, we went to the flight plan that we had worked on 
And again, we said it's going to be a flexible type of flight plan. We had various entities in the flight plan. We could take it and shift around each individual item, and that's exactly what happened. Neil Armstrong was Capcom at the time. He said we'd go into the second rendezvous while Houston and the people at the Cape and also on the West Coast would make the analysis. During the analysis, Mission Director Snyder telephoned astronauts James McDivitt and Dave Scott, who were in Los Angeles, and asked them to go to the Douglas plant and look at the duplicate target vehicle shroud to see if the wires could be cut or the shroud removed in any way during orbital flight. The astronauts soon reported that the wires could be clipped, but there were many sharp edges that might tear the astronaut's suit as he worked. In the meantime, ground controllers sent signals to the target to tighten and relax the docking cone, hoping that might free the shroud. But it remained in place. There would definitely be no docking on Gemini 9A. The shroud episode was embarrassing, and another investigation began immediately. The solution was simple. If you recall the old saying about too many cooks spoiling the broth, Douglas built the shroud that Lockheed in turn fitted to the Agena. The ATDA, however, was built by McDonnell. Before McDonnell technicians made the final installation on the ATDA at the Cape, a Douglas engineer supervised a practice run with the exception of the final part. The lanyards had operated the electrical disconnect to the explosive bolts. For safety's sake, they were not hooked up before the mission. The Douglas engineer went home to his pregnant wife. On launch day, the McDonnell crew followed procedures published by Lockheed, which had been copied from Douglas documents. Instructions said, see blueprint. But the Lockheed drawing was not used. The Douglas technician who normally hooked up the lanyards knew what to do with the loose ends, even without the blueprints. But he was not there, and the strangers fixing the ATDA shroud looked at the dangling straps, wondered what to do with them, then taped them carefully down. In orbit, Stafford photographed their neat handiwork. As Scott Simpkinson, Jiminy Project Office Manager of Test Operations, later said, Three good lessons were learned from this mistake. First, simulate processes completely. Second, keep experienced people on the job. And third, follow written procedures exactly. Gemini 9A now began its equiperiod rendezvous. Five hours after launch, Stafford nosed the spacecraft down 90 degrees and fired the forward thrusters for 35 seconds to increase his speed by 6 meters per second. The crew quickly found that the target was disappearing below them. Later in the darkness, they plotted their position with a sextant and checked the results against a pre-planned chart solution. Mission planning had been right. All that was necessary to complete the rendezvous was to slow the spacecraft down. At T plus 6 hours 15 minutes, Stafford began a series of four maneuvers to bring the spacecraft back to station keeping alongside the target. The second of the three rendezvous exercises was easy. Here is Stafford and Cernan describing the second rendezvous. From this, we went into a second rendezvous, which was the first P 
pure optical rendezvous that had ever been performed. And it was on a passive target. And you want to show the maneuver on this to separation? <clears throat> on this rendezvous, Gene made all the computations. We did not use a computer, and the radar was only for a monitor, but we did not use the radar as far as the breaking. We started out, we burned, we got completely stabilized on top of the ATDA, and on Gene's mark, I burned about 15 miles an hour directly away from the center of the Earth. And that's what puts us above the ATDA, and when you're higher, you go slower. So we came around halfway around the world. We were 11 miles behind the ATDA, and then we crossed below it, came down three miles below it. But at this time, we rolled over upside down, out in sunlight. Now, we rolled over upside down so we could break the sun out of our eyes and also have the docking adapter reflected sunlight. And one positive approach of having the shroud, it became very obvious to us that the shroud had about four times the reflectivity of the rest of the vehicle. So in this case, the shroud really helped us out. On here. You can always find advantages to it some way, believe me. And, believe and also on the rendezvous from above, there was a shroud that we first picked up. In fact, we might have missed it completely if, it, if we hadn't had the shroud on. This, this was very important because we not only, as some of you know, we had a full moon on our flight. And not only could we see the, the bright colored white painted shroud in reflected sunlight, in other words, in sunlight that was coming over our shoulders and reflecting off the target so that we could see it. But actually, after dark, we could see not the silver part of the ATDA, but we could see the white shroud in reflected moonlight, which was quite a beautiful sight. It was sort of a, a bluish reflected light. And this is the first time we've ever actually seen anything in reflected moonlight. And being able to see the target visually so that Tom can, can uh, track the target with his, with his reticle is very important not only to to the computer for its calculations, but it's very important uh, to the pilot so that he can make uh, backup calculations. So having a shroud and reflected moonlight gave us a, quite a contrast as to what we can expect to see and what we cannot expect to see in different lighting conditions. We completed this rendezvous again coming in from below. We were upside down and came in directly below the docking adapter. And again, we want to test how good can man visually judge distance. Uh, when I, and looking up, even though the ATDA was slowly rotating like this, I could judge the length of this major axis, so it was approximately the length of the original Agena. And looked in the, the markings in my reticle, and I gave Gina a mark. I said, we should be about one mile. But for data correlation, he hit the computer with the radar. We were 1.1 miles. So it was, it was obvious that we could judge distance very accurately in close and continue on in. Now, with respect to rendezvous, again, we want to bring out the point that an optical rendezvous from short distances is feasible. It will cost you an excess of fuel, and the best way we know today is with radar. And Less than an hour after Gemini 9A returned to its target, T plus 6 hours 36 minutes elapsed time, the crew got ready to leave again for the third planned rendezvous. At T plus 7 hours 15 minutes, Stafford fired the aft thrusters to decrease the spacecraft's speed by 1.1 meters per second and widened the distance between the two spacecrafts. Stafford and Cernan could now relax a little. It had been an exhausting day. Still wanting to snap the alligator's jaws off, they chatted with ground controllers about the shroud. Then they checked spacecraft systems, ate, and tried to sleep. Cabin noises and lights made sleeping difficult. 
and they only dozed for 40 minutes or so at a time. Their scheduled eight hours of sleep were fitful at best. The next day, June 4th, Spacecraft 9 let its target by 111 kilometers. The retrograde maneuver had lowered the orbit of the spacecraft. It now measured 289 by 296 kilometers, and the target traveled a nearly constant 298 kilometers above Earth. Thus, the spacecraft being nearer Earth illustrated the paradox of slowing down to go faster relative to the surface of the world than the object flying overhead. The stage was set for Stafford and Cernan to do a rendezvous from above, but they first had to accelerate the spacecraft in the direction of the flight path so it would leap to a higher altitude than the target. Then, automatically, the lower flying target would reduce the spacecraft's 110-kilometer lead. To rendezvous, the crew only had to cancel out altitude and velocity vectors that had placed their vehicle above and ahead of its objective. A phase adjustment at T plus 18 hours 23 minutes was followed a little more than 30 minutes later by a height adjustment. Another burst from the thrusters put the spacecraft into orbit, measuring 307 by 309 kilometers. The slant range to the target, which had stretched to 155 kilometers, began to shorten. Within 15 minutes, Stafford reported that the vehicles were only 100 kilometers apart. Forty minutes later, Cernan called out a 37-kilometer mark. At T plus 21 hours, two minutes, the distance was 28.6 kilometers. Stafford pointed the nose of his spacecraft down 19 degrees and yawed it to the left 180 degrees, aiming at the target vehicle, which was still below and behind him. Over the Atlantic Ocean, then the Sahara Desert, on past the African continent, Stafford and Cernan had trouble spotting the target, but the electronic eye of the radar did not. When they were 37 kilometers away, they had seen the vehicle reflected brightly in the moonlight and later in the sunlight. As the sun rose, however, they lost sight of it completely. The range had closed to less than six kilometers before Stafford saw what looked to him like a pencil dot on a sheet of paper. Without the radar, he said, they would have blown that rendezvous. But at 21 hours and 42 minutes after launch, Gemini 9A and the target were again side by side. Three types of rendezvous had been completed in less than 24 hours. Here's Tom and Gene describing the third rendezvous. And from here we progressed on, had a sleep period, and did the third rendezvous. And the third rendezvous was the one that was very important to our lunar program. It simulated a profile that the lunar excursion module could have with the command module. In this, we were positioned 150 miles out in front of the docking adapter and above it. Naturally, if we're above it, the, dock, the docking adapter catches up with us. And we came up long in space, blunt in forward. You want to take this to And track the vehicle looking down at it. In this case, we were approximately eight miles above it. And when we reached uh, 16 miles, we transferred. Now, we did have the docking adapter out in reflected moonlight, and it's probably one of the most brilliant bodies I've seen. Moonlight reflected off this white shroud and gave us a 
a white circle going, a whitish blue circle going across the Earth that was approximately ten times the diameter of Venus, as you see in the sky. However, when it came out in sunrise, we're going over the Sahara Desert and we lost the docking adapter from a tremendous body down to nothing. Now, the next time we saw it was approximately less than three miles, and at that time, we're going looking straight down in the Sahara Desert, and the docking adapter looked to me just like a period on a piece of typing paper. That's all it was. And it was, again, really whizzing across the Sahara Desert. At that time, when you point down, you know you're going 18,000 miles an hour, believe me. And without radar, we would have never found the docking adapter and completely missed the rendezvous. So this points out some of the problems that we're going to encounter on the lunar mission and exactly how we will approach the problem. And uh, for any of you who are pilots, it's like making a high side pass supersonic out over the desert on another aircraft. It's really a, a classic example of relative motion. Here you're looking down, seeing the Earth go by, and also you're moving with respect to the docking adapter. I was just going to say that besides actually evaluating the, the technique of the rendezvous from above uh, and what some of its problems may be concerning lighting conditions and uh, when you actually want to change from your orbit to the target's orbit, we, and, and we'll get a good chance to see this, I think, in a minute, that the speed at which this target actually travels across the surface of the Earth. Uh, you don't appreciate this motion when you look up at the stars in the sky, but when you're looking down at the Earth, the target just just really moves across the surface of the Earth. And the other difficulty we encountered, which which uh, Tom did mention subtly here, was the fact that that uh, at distances beyond about three miles, I believe it was, that that the, the reflected light from the Earth, or the fact that the Earth itself is so bright, and there's many clouds scattered throughout the world, uh, many different types of terrain, such as the desert that Tom mentioned, the target just completely disappears. Uh, you just can't find it, and we're accustomed, accustomed to seeing, uh, I think, if we see an airplane in the sky, just even standing down here on the earth, and uh, we happen to have lost it because it went behind a cloud, we can look at the other end of that cloud, and the airplane, in a short period of time, will appear or reappear. But when looking down at the earth, traveling 17, 18,000 miles an hour, if you happen to see this particular target go over a lake, and then suddenly you don't see it any longer, uh, you've lost sight of it, uh, don't ever look back at that lake again because it's, it's probably many hundreds of miles beyond that. And this was one of, one of the uh, things we learned about actually visually tracking against a, a earth, earth, bright Earth background or, even more important, a bright Moon background. One thing that some of you probably heard that uh, on this rendezvous, but, uh, we did use a closed loop where the computer makes lots of computations, but arrows are built in, into any system, and every computer can only assume that the data coming into it is good. Well, in this case, we, the crew always makes computations on board, and we use Gene's computations for the transfer to make this maneuver, so I thought this was really significant. This, this probably only Tom and Dave Scott and a few others can really appreciate. Uh, this is what the pilot does on the uh, in the right right hand seat when the command pilot is doing all the flying. Uh, many times I've been asked, well, really, what do you do on a rendezvous and what goes on? The meaning of these numbers is insignificant at this time. But uh, during this period of time, for all three of these rendezvous, this in the following chart, which you can go ahead, are just just some of the methods that we use uh, to calculate where we are, where we're going, and how much uh, increase in our velocity, how many miles an hour we have to add to the spacecraft at particular times 
in order to actually rendezvous and uh, get within close proximity of the target. One thing that we that we had uh, at our disposal was three separate, different, and distinct uh, solutions to telling telling us what to do. The ground would compute a solution telling us uh, exactly which direction to to uh, fire our thrusters and how fast or how far to fire them. Uh, our computer and our radar combination gave us what we call our closed loop solution. And then we have this type of information, which is just calculated with the uh, with the pen and pencil. So we had at our disposal three three displays of information at which we could uh, we could superimpose and and then decide upon uh, for ourselves which actual solution was the one we wanted to burn based upon where we where we felt we were and and which solution would give us the the most optimum and minimum fuel transfer. So in all of our rendezvous, we had this type of information. This type of information is computed, uh, is gathered every 100 seconds for about uh, oh, an hour before the actual time when you make the maneuver. So for about uh, a revolution around the world, this is what the pilot's doing prior to the actual transfer to the target orbit. At the end of the third rendezvous, the Carnarvon Australia flight controller told Cernan that Flight Director Charlesworth wanted the crew to start getting ready for EVA. Stafford had begun to worry about the amount of fuel that would be consumed if he continued station keeping with the target, unless, of course, the flight controllers thought Cernan might actually do something about the shroud. Stafford wanted to get out of the vicinity of the ATDA before Cernan got out of the spacecraft for EVA. The crew was also pretty tired. As they approached Houston, Neil Armstrong told Stafford to postpone the EVA until the third day and to leave the proximity of the ATDA. Stafford accelerated the spacecraft by one meter per second and moved away forever from the angry alligator. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.